But unless you're really good, uh, you have to do something to, let's say, eat, put gas in your car, <laughs> and pay the rent. And uh, theater was not doing that for me. And so I stumbled upon this um, ad for, as, as cliche as it seems, said, insurance salesman wanted. This is Seeking Startups, a show that gives you an inside look into the minds of ambitious people who are changing the world. Learn about what they're building, their personal stories, and invest in founders you believe in. Now, with equity crowdfunding, anyone can invest in early stage private startups. So listen up, because you might just discover the next unicorn. Hey, I would like to quickly say that everything you hear in this podcast is for educational purposes only. This is not financial advice, and I'm not endorsing this company. Please do proper due diligence before investing in any startup. Okay, now with that out of the way, let's get started. I'm your host, Maxim Davis, and today on Seeking Startups, we have Jeff Arnold, the president of Rightshore. Jeff has been in the insurance industry for decades and is bringing all of his expertise to build Rightshore, an insurance tech company built to end all insurance shopping. Follow along this fascinating journey full of many ups and downs. You won't want to miss it. Jeff, to start out, what is Rightshore? We fancy ourselves, right, as a, uh, a technology disruptor, right? The space that we're in is the insurance vertical, to put it succinctly, right? Like our technology, discount discovery technology, uh, multivariate rating and algorithms help people save money and keep them from overpaying for insurance. So I know you've had a very interesting path leading up to your insurance business, but before we get there, let's talk about your childhood. So you grew up in a small town in Western Kentucky, and it was a town with less than 1,000 people. And what was the name of that town? Yeah, the closest big town is called Hopkinsville. The name of my town was called Cadiz, C-A-D-I-Z. And I, I think there might be two or 3,000 people there now. I'm not sure. So very small. Um, so what was your childhood like? Yeah, like uh, any idyllic childhood back in the, uh, well, I'm an aged man, but so we'll say the 60s and the 70s. Uh, you know, you played outside all day, it kept your doors unlocked, and uh, you didn't come in till dinner time. And so it was, uh, it was wonderful. I, uh, I, w- I wish the same for my children. That's how idyllic it was. Awesome. And so it sounds like school wasn't maybe something that you really enjoyed. Why was that? Yeah, I, lo- I love this. So um, multiple, and I mean multiple, um, teachers had commented that they cannot spank me anymore. Because in the early 70s, <laughs> you could spank children. And they were like, Jeff, we-, we cannot spank you anymore. And they would take me to the principal's office and-, and tell them, I cannot allow this young man back into my classroom, right? And uh, uh, tr- true story, uh, once uh, I went home and told my mom that they called, that one of the teachers called me a fuzzy elephant. <laughs> And uh, so she called the teacher and she said, well, Jeff just says, I know he's difficult, but he said you called him a a fuzzy elephant and I think he misunderstood. And she was like, oh, yes, Mrs. Arnold. Uh, I said he is a very disturbing element in my classroom. (laughs) And so that was just kind of a play on words. And, um, you know, if we be serious for just a moment, what it was today, uh, educators, professional teachers would realize, recognize that it was undiagnosed and untreated ADHD, right, I to see. the extreme. Kids who can't sit still, kids who can't focus. Um, you know, we used to just spank them, prime example. And just we learn along the way, right? We all mature. Now, uh, you would just give them Ritalin or some type of uh, substance um, to help redirect that energy. Sure. So, yeah, it, it was much later in life that I became a uh, uh, forced to study just to uh, enhance my weaknesses, right? And grow some strengths. So. I see. Okay. Now, 
I mean, you did have a few interests in, in school, so history and a new subject back then called computer science. What made you so interested in those subjects? This is the mid-70s, late-70s, and uh, there's this new thing called an IBM Junior Computer that's just coming out, right? A Commodore 64, if anyone wants to look it up, is the first computer I have. And like any young man, right, uh, and and women too, right? But I was just enamored with uh, technology and the power of computing, and it really just just drew me to it. Um, I think I took apart my first two computers just to see how they worked um, because it was, you know, the, the thing to do. And then as a backup, I truly, really, and to this day, admittedly, uh, enjoyed history. Um, you know, not because of the saying, those that fail to study history are doomed to repeat it, but simply because of uh, uh, people that have gone before us, civilizations, cultures. It's really fascinating to study. I see. And so were you doing any coding or were you just mainly interested in the hardware? Yes. Uh, so yes, some coding. I, I would. I wish we had the still the floppy disk that I used to code on too. But <laughs> I remember it was in BASIC, and then a little bit of Fortran, which is way before Python and all this stuff now. But BASIC and Fortran, and I remember I coded a, a space shuttle that would fly across the screen and hit the right side of the screen and fly up and over the top. And so, yes, but. Uh, uh, to the answer of coding, but very elementary, very basic. I see. Okay. So your first job was working on tobacco and hay fields, and it sounds like it had an influence on your life later down the road. Can you tell me that story? So um, quite interesting. I'm uh, 14 years old, uh, working in the hay fields and tobacco fields of Western Kentucky, right? Uh, I don't know if it's still there, but the name of the farm was Mr. Newton's Farms, right? (laughs) And so um, I'm out there on a hot, sweltering, uh, raging temperature Kentucky summer day, um, standing on the top of a hay bale in a barn trying to pass tobacco up. And up the long driveway drives this um, four-door Buick. They don't make Buicks like that anymore. It's a long, a big four-door Buick. The windows were up, which was a telltale sign to us those days that they had air conditioning. Okay. Wealthiest people ever, right? So this is what happened. So out steps this, uh, to me, he was old because I was 14 or whatever at the time, but an older gentleman with a crisp starched white shirt and a tie getting out of this AC car, air conditioned car. And I asked uh, Chuck, the guy next to me on the hay bale, I'm like, hey, what's that guy do? And I remember to this day that he said, insurance or something like that, mm. right? And so the the equation to me was, if I get into insurance, I can drive a car with AC, the windows up in the summer, and look cool in a nice starch shirt. That's fascinating. So wow, I mean, you said 14, right? That's really young. So that really did plant a seed and it got you into uh, insurance later on. Um, so after high school, you went into the United States Army, right? And which, uh, which you served for how many years? Uh, three years, just three years. I um, enlisted for four and they had a troop reduction in the, the mid 80s. And um, I had lost um, not only my roommate and very best friend, but no. two other really good friends wow. um, in, in the army. And so when they did a troop reduction, I was uh, uh, mentally uh, ready to disconnect from that. Right. Serve my country. Happy to do so. But also uh, buried three really good friends. And uh, that that was um, a turning point for me to step out. So. Wow. Wow. OK. So after your, your time in the Army, what, what did you do after that? Yeah, so bounced around. I did some uh, 
uh, always been a theater buff, right? Some some theater and uh, some stand up comedy in Hollywood, but uh, um, mostly traveling around trying to do um, uh, small theater work, right? I I, I love the theater, I, I love the stage. I'm a thespian to the core, okay. uh, right? But that's. Uh, uh, for me, unless you're really good, thus I was not very good, uh, but unless you're really good, uh, you have to do something to, let's say, eat, put gas in your car, <laughs> and pay the rent. And uh, theater was not doing that for me, and so I stumbled upon this um, ad for, as, as cliche as it seems, said, insurance salesman wanted. And so you were in California when you were uh, trying out yep. different uh, theater gigs. And then was it in Tucson that you saw this at? So I had um, I'd gotten out of the Army and um, my folks uh, had moved to Tucson, retired to Tucson. I was in North Hollywood, uh, not the glamorous part of Hollywood, North okay. Hollywood. Trust me, if you visit, you'll realize that uh, it is not as glamorous as it sounds. Uh, I think I was in a, a one-bedroom apartment with three roommates. One was a screenwriter, one was a television uh, wannabe, and the other had a, a gig on local radio. Long story short, uh, I've got this three months where I have no theater things gig. I've been to every audition for every TV show I can and think of and got rejected uh, or didn't get accepted. And so I go back home to um, to Tucson, like Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm like, well, I got to figure something out. And I answered an, an ad. So yeah, I had uh, left, hadn't moved out of Hollywood, but just came home to Tucson for Thanksgiving and had this epiphany that um, if I want to eat, probably a job and not the theater or stage is going to feed me. So what was uh, that job like? So you're doing sales. Is that is that right? Yeah, it was literally, I don't think there's it's equal these days, but it is literally, uh, they would throw you a phone book, and we don't have those, of course, these days, but they would throw you a phone book, predecessor to Google or, or mm -hmm. LinkedIn, and say, just start calling people. And that's what it was. And so we just start dialing. Uh, you had to make 200 calls a day. That was your minimum. And uh, that's where it started. And did you enjoy it? I really did. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because if you've got, you know, the gift of gab, you can talk to anyone, mm. right? And it does not have to be about sales. If you go into it just selling something, people will recoil. They feel that, right? That energy. Um, but if you can engage with people about any subject, then uh, it, it can be enjoyable. So yeah, uh, at any time on the other side of a mic, on the other side of a Zoom call, on the other side of a phone, I dig humans. I dig humans a lot. So Right. I see that you really enjoy talking to people and that sales aspect can... Uh... Uh, highlight that. And so how about the insurance part of it? Did you enjoy the selling of insurance? You know, it's not the most interesting subject. And how, how did you feel about that? Well, let me challenge your thought there, Max, okay. because in my books, I call it uh, the industry of all things sexy, exciting, and just plain awesome. So insurance can be whatever you give birth to it to do, right? But yeah, admittedly, I would agree with most, uh, like, like your comment, most people hear the word insurance and they yawn and their eyes glaze over. But basically, this industry does uh, what we call, we sell legal contracts, right? So companies develop these legal contracts and they need a, a distribution force. And that's that's what I used to do, right, mm -hmm. before I ran insurance companies and, and, and tech firms. Um, so we sell legal contracts. Um, and so at the end of the day, of course, you only get what you pay for. And that's what gives our industry a bad name is an inferior legal contract is sold or consumer may buy uh um, less of a coverage based uh, upon the premise of saving money, and you, you get what you paid for. Um, but 
If you dig into the history of insurance, sure. and, and uh, not a plug for my books, but my first book talk about the history of insurance a lot. But if you dig into it and, and take it back to its ethos, its very beginning, uh, it, it is foundational to uh, how the 13 colonies were supplied uh, equipment and gear, right? Just based upon the, the simple premise of risk transfer. They mm-hmm. wouldn't put it all on one boat. They would spread it over two or three in case one sunk. That's the very beginnings of risk transfer, which is what insurance is because you're going to give an insurance company a dollar and that transfers the risk from you paying it to them, mm-hmm. right? And so that gets, and it even gets more sexier after that, right? <laughs> so, um, but and even if you'd go to the last century, the 1900s, insurance companies were absolutely without a doubt uh, well-documented. The first ones to just put banks and rolls of typewriters of people in large offices to um, to issue policies. Uh, and then fast forward, they were the, the first companies to aggregate this cubicle style stuff that you see now, right? Mm-hmm. Like the Google type things. Insurance companies were the first to do that. They were the first to invest in all these large shopping malls. And so unbeknownst to you, unbeknownst to most people, insurance is in behind the scenes funding a lot of things um, and uh, challenging a lot of uh, stereotypes and how business is done. So it is the industry of all things fun, sexy, exciting, and just plain awesome. Once you peel back the layers sure. and, uh, and enjoy it a little. So so you sound uh, very passionate about insurance. You wrote a whole book or a few books about it. Why are you so passionate about insurance? I just, I found my stride, man, right? Mm-hmm. I think it is, um, we joked a little in the early about the that story. Um, look, I've been, uh, this is uh, not, not bragging. I've been fabulously successful, way beyond my wildest dreams, mm-hmm. right? And this is not boasting. This is just, I still look back to that little kid on the hay bale and think, would you have ever imagined, could you have ever imagined this lifestyle? Um, and brought to you by basically insurance, right? Now, sure, there's been failures and setbacks and um, and some successes and a lot of hard times along the way, but uh, it moves pretty fast mm-hmm. older you get. You look back and think, wow, it's uh, been wonderful and brought to you, brought to me, my family, my children, uh, my spouse by the insurance industry. So uh, before RightShore, you were involved in many other projects like Western Pacific Insurance Brokerage, Lender Bridge, Lenders Portal. What were all these companies about and um, why did you start them? Yeah, so uh, basically they're all, every one of them, uh, are a different vertical uh, of insurance, right? So if you think of insurance, like that's a vertical too if you're in finance, credit cards, or banking. Mm-hmm. But also inside insurance, there's a host of other verticals. And uh, one of them was uh, a retail agency. So if you think of people that, uh, if you, it doesn't exist a lot anymore, but there's still places where you see signs on the street where people sell insurance, right? I had uh, several offices for that in Western Pacific. And then some, I was the first to introduce uh, insurance products, auto and home insurance through banks and credit unions in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, now, I, I can't take credit for that. I had the good fortune to set at the feet of some very wonderful mentors that I was fortunate enough to uh, uh, shut my mouth and listen when they spoke and they took me under their wing and, and taught me. Um, but I was still at the forefront of that, right, yeah. uh, based upon them in- including me. Um, and then some of the others were actual insurance companies that uh, – either sold products through agents or uh, one of the first to sell insurance policies direct 
on the web and even via fax machines. And so uh, they've all been insurance, but just different names of companies that have led or founded over the years. Sure. And, and how successful were they? Why did you go from one to the next and, and keep trying different companies? Yeah, so I've been fortunate to sell, um, exit three different companies, right? Um, uh, and so yeah, some of them I sold, some I sold to banks, mm-hmm. uh, to billion dollar firms. Some of them I sold to uh, uh, other shareholders who just wanted to buy out. Uh, some I just exited and, and, and took a payout over time. And so um, the short answer is uh, just something more exciting came along, uh, like, like right sure is for me now since 2007, that uh, just satisfies all the scratches and the itches, man. It keeps you going. So. When we come back, you'll get to hear about Jeff's early days at RightShore. But before that, here's how you can personally invest in RightShore. RightShore is currently raising up to $1.07 million at an $18 million pre-money valuation on Star Engine. Funding is currently open, but is scheduled to close on March 29th, 2022. But if they hit their maximum funding limit before then, the round will automatically close. If you're interested in getting more information, check the show notes where you can find a link to their funding page. So Jeff, you're currently the president at RightShore, but your story with RightShore, like you said, begins about 14 years ago. Bring me back to the early days with the company and how did you become involved? At the time, I was running um, six divisions for a bank, um, a mortgage firm, actually. It, It was getting a bank charter. And uh, this was 2007, 2008. So the great financial crisis or whatever you want to call it uh, visited upon us. Um, and uh, the smallest division I ran at that time was an insurance operation. But none of the other operations survived, right? The mortgage, the title, the escrow, the home services, all those, the, the credit function, all those went away in 2007, 2008. And all of them were gone by 2009. Wow. And so... Um, uh, convinced the, the shareholders uh, to sell me 100% of the shares of uh, that company. And then I renamed it RightSure. And uh, RightSure wasn't the first name. There were seven other names, but it was one of the seven names that we could get uh, a URL for and license in a whole bunch of states without a whole bunch of problems. Um, and, and that's how it became about. And the, its uh, uh, first iteration or version of that was uh, just doing joint ventures with banks and credit unions and uh, some auto dealerships to, to generate volume, right? And, and then we uh, pivoted along the way to be uh, uh, part technology or insure tech. And, and now we have, you know, proprietary uh, discount discovery technology, which basically if you've ever bought insurance or ever said it through anything, you've heard dozens of insurance ads tolling lower premium, call and save, spend 15 minutes, save 50%. Mm-hmm. Typically, consumers are, are surrendering coverage, right? So they're buying cheaper. So they're getting less insurance. They don't know it because they think it's all vanilla and the product's the same, right? But right. Um, I would just say to you that in every industry, if uh, you pay a great deal less than something else, in food, you know, it's going to be lesser quality. In car, it's not going to be as good as a car. In clothing, it's not going to be as good as a jacket, whatever. But that mind concept seems to go out of people's minds when it comes to insurance, but it's still true, mm-hmm. right? You get what you pay for. Right. And so, um, so our technology, basically our discount discovery stuff, uh, we're the first, by the way, uh, to aggregate every insurance company's discounts, catalog it, and help people uh, uh, save the most by maximizing their discounts, and then redoing that on their policies every single year. So that's what RightShare's in now, uh, technology, applying um artificial intelligence, multivariate rating, special algorithms um, to help people save money. Sure. And would you say that's your secret sauce? Oh, absolutely. Um, But what we are known for 
is our famously friendly humans, right? I mean, that's what uh, that's what we're known for. There are um, uh, any any point fifty to seventy folks on our phones, and uh, people often comment, "How do you get people to be that friendly?" And we challenge people just call and talk to anyone. We're known for famously friendly humans, so that's our USP, our universal selling proposition, right? And so again, because consumers. Think of insurance as all vanilla and the same, but when you get a super engaged, excited person who's knowledgeable, that's a difference maker. So how do you get your employees to be so excited to work for you and to work for your company and to be so friendly? Yeah, so uh, any part of uh, uh, keeping folks happy, right? Because we all have to be motivated and re-motivated. Uh, we call it re-recruiting, right? So we, we I, I and every one of our leadership team re-recruit everyone often, right? And that can be with, uh, of course, income is the first thing that people go to. Oh, they must be paid more than everyone. But income compensation is only one part of it, right? There's psychic income and psychic income is huge. Letting people know that they make a difference and they matter, right? And we have fortune 1000 level benefits. We have a gym on site, just all these things that, that people say matter, we bring to bear in our company, right? And then uh, when you have a very uh, non-top-down organization, that's very uh, argumentative, confrontational, or directive, um, that, that can be very uh, defeating. Mm-hmm. Ours absolutely is in teams and pods of leadership that go their own way, and we try to aggregate for the best um, return on investment. I mean, we have to make money, sure. right? We have shareholders. Um, but uh, the short answer to your question is you have to continually, constantly re-recruit your people, right? Let them know they make a difference. And remind them why we're here, right? I mean, we show up in people's deepest, darkest times and give them a check, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it, people think it's to make them whole. No, they'll never be made whole again. If you've ever suffered a loss, you'll never get that thing back. Even if you get a better car or you lost, a, God forbid, a human or a house, mm-hmm. um, you never get that back. So we can never really make people whole, but we can fill that void and cover all that darkness with just a little bit of light for a little time. And so that makes a difference. People love to be part of that. Wow. Sounds very uh, people-centric. Yeah, I, I really like that. So let's talk a little bit about your team because the team is very important to uh, the success of the company. What is your hiring philosophy? What do you look for in, in the people that you hire? The number one thing is people in the beginning was people that uh, were not like me That uh, uh, because I've got strengths, but I have way more weaknesses, right? So what weaknesses um, do they feel? Right now, it wasn't always that way. This is a maturity thing that uh, that develops over time. Your leadership skill set. So, if you're out there and you're still hiring people like you, that's fine. You're not there yet. But it, it took me a while to realize that stop hiring people that resonate with me and start looking for people that disagree with me and challenge me and sharpen my thoughts. Um, and so now, as of late, you know, three to five years, I'm looking for people that. Um, are skill specific, right? It, that might be in uh, in leadership or managing or managing large process change or managing an, an onboard of a lot of people, but that also um, have the ability in in our space to stay focused and stay on task. Because as we talked about at the very first of this conversation, that is not I, right? <laughs> I are distractible, and so I have to make sure on our leadership team that there are people that can A, fill in for, for me or keep me on task. Or as our two right hands will tell you, they're like, well, you got to 
make this succinct. You're going to have Jeff for about five to seven minutes and he's going to, you're going to lose interest. And so uh, you got to get, you got to, sorry, you got to vomit up the important stuff first, right? That's the only way you're going to keep it. And then if there's a lot to go behind it, they'll take the notes and do it. So that's part of our team development, sure. which is really, I only have a few uh, strengths and a whole bunch of weaknesses. So how many of my weaknesses can we fill? So we do that. Um, and then there are people that, that, you know, I am not the best CFO by any stretch. We have a wonderful person who's been at, uh, you know, Fortune 100 companies running our, our CFO department. I mean, our finance department now who has uh, mad skills that I, I could never e- even get close to. So I think you have to have a mutual respect for the persons and, and the differences, which you, you, you get better at as you go along because you won't always agree on everything. But uh, our team, the right share executive team and our directors and our assistant directors, in addition to being uh, chosen for their strengths and weaknesses, we also put everyone through executive development and leadership courses. I mean, even if they've got MBAs, which many of them have, we put them through other courses that say, look, we think that your writing needs help, or we think that the way you deliver messaging needs help, or your inability to handle confrontation is, is non-existent. And so we layer that on with special individual skill training for them. We've sent most of our folks through Harvard or uh, Columbia courses, new MBA programs with the Power MBA. Um, so we spend, invest uh, a lot of money on professional development for our people because hey, I'm still doing professional development too. You never know. You can never know it all. And once you do, it changes anyway, right? So. <laughs> sure. Can you talk a little bit about your executive team? Have you worked with these people before? When, when did they go up through the company? Yeah, some of them, um, like I've bought you know, and sold 40 different uh, insurance agencies over the years that we've aggregated right here. And some of them have just bubbled up uh, really quickly with their skill sets and leadership skills or or the mastery of Excel, for lack of a better word, right, <laughs> in finance. Um, some have been through acquisitions. Some of them have been absolutely intentional. Our executive VP has been with me for, for 19 years. Um, she started out very entry level, but we've uh, pushed her through. Uh, she, she's a perfect example through Harvard courses, Columbia courses, uh, a Power MBA program, and so um, and and really developed that and challenged each other. That you know, here's where I think your your weaknesses are, um, and she'll push back. And here's your are. Yours are, Jeff. And then um, as we come across people in our industry that we think would be a good fit, we just go talk to them. And, and you know, an awful part would be something uh, that's that's uh, a wonderful organization. I, I got to tell you, it's a little uh, unfair for us at this point because uh, um, and this will sound boasting, but, you know, I have four best-selling books out there. And, and if we send them some of our books and they read them and they see our passion for the industry, it's really easy to just pull them over to the light side or the dark side, whatever you want to call it, and 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 recruit. So recruiting is pretty easy for us. The answer to your question is we invest heavily into everyone. I don't care if they came out of a, a you know, what, the top of their class in an MBA school, a, a, a highly recognized management schools, we, they still have weaknesses. And so we have to pour back into them. I see. So, you know, you're having some success, you're growing, you're profitable, and now you're going to be raising. How are you building a moat around your company and keeping these large billion dollar companies from coming in and trying to do something 
that you know you're doing now. Love it. Yeah, you have to uh, warm Buffett, right? Uh, how, how funny comes that are building a moat around it, um, and that is part of the red space I'm talking about. We're not trying to build this castle or this mansion uh, in the red ocean space of just shop, 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 save, save, save. Right? We're applying. Uh, new technology, which of course will be able to be replicated um, down the road um, with famously friendly humans, right? Insurance companies are not known for having the greatest people on the phones until we enter the fray, right? (laughs) Famously friendly humans, discount discovery technology, um, somebody that shops all the insurance for you, um, and then a nationwide, maybe a global footprint. And so um, that's that's our, our, you know, three to five year plan. I would say this, and this is what keeps me awake at night. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean anything uh, def- defamatory about this, but I'm just going to use the word kid. Some kid somewhere is tinkering in his apartment or his parents' basement with some line of new code or some idea that we haven't thought of yet that is going to transform our industry, right? Um, so I'm, I'm always aware of that and always trying to keep, keep up to date on any kind of new technology. One simple one is people would think chatbots are old. Chatbots are not ubiquitous in our industry. We have a very robust chatbot that you know walks you through the claims process or the payment process or whatever, but that's just the tip of the iceberg, man. When everyone gets 5G and everyone is fully engaged just on their mobile device on their phones, the entire industry needs to shift to be able to support that, right? We feel like we're leaders in that space. But again, somebody somewhere is tinkering with the system and and going to surpass us all if we aren't aware or, or are caught sleeping. And going back to the company itself, what is your distribution model? How do you uh, acquire new customers and how do you, you know, keep them? Yeah, so we refer to it um, as lead generation, lead conversion, and client fulfillment. It helps us to silo that because um, there's several ways we generate leads, right? Lead generation, lead conversion, client fulfillment. And so we generate leads direct to consumer, direct to the public. We generate leads from existing customers with our famously friendly humans. They're like, oh my God, I got to tell all my friends about you. We have some retail locations, just a couple retail locations. We shuttered, closed, uh, eradicated a few of them during COVID just because financially it didn't make sense. But we have a retail piece. We have brand ambassadors that we pay literally just to be our brand ambassadors. Um, and then our um, uh, our website stuff, right? We have 18 different web properties that kind of draw people in. Mm-hmm. So that's our lead generation piece. And it's mostly direct to the public. Um, then we do have some joint ventures with um, mortgage firms, uh, car dealerships, and credit unions. Um, their customers will be forwarded to RightShare as part of the brand, um, and that's more of our lead generation. And then the big piece is lead conversion, right? So how do you, how well can you convert those leads that you generated into clients? Um, and that's literally with uh, with technology, right? It, you'd be amazed at how many insurance firms cannot text, right? This don't have the ability to text, or how many don't have the ability for you to to, to sign a policy on a mobile device. And so ninety four percent of all of our policies are signed on a mobile device, mm. right? Um, 3% are signed on desktops. We contract this, right? Sadly, 1% of our policies are still signed in paper with wet ink. (laughs) And wait for it because everyone's going to shake their head and look down at their feet. We literally did a dozen fax applications 
shit in, in 2021 today. Wow. Yes, I'm looking at my feet going, why are we even doing this? Why are we engaged in this? But uh, so we're all over the map, right? Um, in the last piece is um, client fulfillment, lead generation, lead conversion, client fulfillment. That's where the famously friendly humans come in, right? Like every interaction you have with a right sure uh, staff member should be so preferential and so exponentially greater than anywhere else that they hang up the phone going, wow. And so our uh, client fulfillment piece, actually, the reason I spent so much time on those three, actually turns back into a lead generation firm for thing for us because when you wow people and you actually answer the phones and don't make them push 15 touch gates to get to a human but you get a famously friendly human the funnel gets filled right sure so. sure hey i hope you're enjoying the show but before we hear about jeff's vision for the future of his company i thought you might be interested in hearing a few stats about right sure in the most recent year Rightshore generated $4,120,695 of revenue and had a net income of $947,427. The company is currently headquartered in Tucson, Arizona. Rightshore currently has over 30,000 active policyholders. Rightshore was recognized as a tech forward firm by the Arizona 100 and was named a five-star brokerage by Insurance Business America. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. So at what point is RightSure at now? Are you looking for large-scale growth? Uh, what, what is the next step in the evolution of the company? Yeah, I love this. So we, uh, we face, uh, like many companies, uh, the need for capital, right? So we're having to raise capital. Um, we've uh, chosen on, a, uh, on, on an online portal. Um, to, to raise this capital for Series A and Series B, um, we're probably different than most in that we've had you know good positive net income for twelve or thirteen years, right. right? And so it's not a we need capital to operate; it's we need capital to improve our processes, um, uh, further enhance our discount discovery technology, uh, integrate our AI with our algorithms and our multivariate rating, and really change the entire insurance ecosystem hmm. it it's not just about passion and enthusiasm because if we could i could do that on my own it takes capital and it takes dollars and so that's where we're at now we're in the uh, you know capital phase raising capital um to uh, fulfill the dream right to, to push it further along what is that dream i know you said you want to change the industry but how big? I mean, how big? Because you can go, you know, there's so many different levels up that ladder. How big do you want to go? Yeah. So uh, without assigning a dollar to it, we want to be known in addition to famously friendly humans, right, is the end of insurance shopping. So when folks have um, uh, any type of insurance with our firm, with RightShare, they never have to shop again, right? And, and, and you can leverage technology, uh, artificial intelligence, robots, data, big data, um, to reshop for consumers always. And so why that's different is you just have to, you know, pay attention to what you're being sold on the media now. There's, you know, every big insurance company spending at least $500 million a year to $1.2 billion a year to get you to what? Switch and save, right? Okay. And so we don't have enough capital to play in that space. We're in the blue ocean space, right? That says we are the end of insurance shopping. Mm. So what we're, we're about is aggregating policyholders so that they never have to shop again because our technology does it for you. And so... Um, you know, there are there are a handful of billion dollar agencies. I would love for right sure to be in uh, in uh, in that space. 
But also part of me thinks that that's thinking a little too small. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so like I've said earlier, you've been with uh, Rightshore for quite some time and you said you've had some pivots along the way. Why now are you trying to take that exponential curve and start going large? Because you could have done this, you know, maybe a, a few years ago or earlier. Why is now the, the right time for you to take Rightshore to this next level? Uh, because time is fleeting, right? And I used to think that I had forever to do these, right? To do these dreams, to, to c capture this and capitalize on it. Um, the longer in the tooth I get, the fewer hairs I get on top and the older I get, conversely, the wiser I get. And I see that um, this little circle that we spin around on all the time called Earth uh, goes pretty fast the older you get. And so quite honestly, it's just because... Um, Look, I'm in no hurry to retire, but I'm also not 30 or 40. And so there's a there's an acceleration, uh, uh, an urgency uh, to, to what I want to do. And that's why um, we've literally waited this long. Um, uh, we took up too much of the runway, some would say, right? Okay. We should Let's go back. We could have done this a decade ago. But, but this is where we are. This is where we're at now. And as far as I'm concerned, there's ne never been a better time than right now. I see. Going back to your equity crowdfunding, like you said, you are already profitable and there are many different ways to raise, right? I'm assuming you had probably some type of maybe investors earlier. Why not go back to them or why not raise money through, let's say, venture capital or angel investors? Why equity crowdfunding? Yeah, I have a pretty straightforward answer on this, uh, Maxim. I won't beat around the bush. Sure. And so uh, I've dealt with a lot of private equity firms, right? And uh, they're knocking down our door without exaggeration every week. If sometimes every day. Um, but anyone that's been in the space of raising capital or taking uh, public capital, whatever, knows that there are certain things you surrender. And sometimes that is drag along rights. Sometimes that is voting rights. Sometimes that is board positions. And unless you get the right person, right, or the right group or the right equity firm, um, then it, it can just delay you, sidetrack you, distract you. And because of my urgency that I talk about forever, it has to be the right, right fit, right? Mm -hmm. um, have not met that yet. I'm very, very uh, pointed and very direct about our expectations. Um, and our investment partners have to be too, right? Okay. Um, we are, uh, we are, um, we're type A sometimes in how we like to get things done. Then that doesn't always fit well, right? But, but great visionaries and great leaders and people that change ecosystems have to be that way. Sure. Um, but we just haven't met that right PE firm yet or that right investment firm yet that, that aligned with us and said, um, you know, you're not going to have to worry about drag along rights. You're not going to marry up with someone else or you're not going to surrender all your voting authority. And there's a host of different things that every firm brings in that you have to be aware. And so I wanted to try this uh, crowdfunding, this equity crowd, uh, uh, online crowdfunding thing um, to see, right? Dip my toe in the water. Mm -hmm. um, it's been interesting. Um, it uh, it has not been as successful as we thought it would be just based upon our our, our ability to generate income and profitability. Sure. But I mean, we've, we've only been doing it about eight weeks. So let's, let's give it a little more time. Sure. Will you continue doing some form of equity crowdfunding until you find that right firm or right partner? Or do you think that you'll, you'll try something else? 
Yeah, probably a combination of, of many, many things, right? So we have, of course, we have the ability to pull the lever of debt financing, right? We can do that. Um, and those those lines of credit are, are ready if we need to, to pull on them. There's the, 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 the crowdfunding piece. And I like the excitement, the energy, the vibe that that, that kind of brings in. Like, it's really cool. It's I want to call it Jeff energy because it, it resonates within me. Um, uh, but we know, I know, I'm acutely aware that to affect the change that we have to affect and, and reinvent the insurance ecosystem takes a lot of commas and zeros, sure. right? It just will. Yeah. And so going to have to marry up with a PE firm or another uh, capital firm, um, probably in the not too distant future, right? So Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So your firm is obviously very tech focused and I am assuming that a large part of your business is the car insurance. And I'm not sure if you're too familiar, but I've, I've been hearing some things. I've been reading some things talking about autonomous driving and how that is going to possibly change the car insurance business. Who is going to be liable? Is it going to be the person in the car? Is it going to be the car? Is it going to be the car company? And so I'm curious, what is your stance on that? And how do you how are you playing for that in the future? So our um, one of our... Uh taglines is we insure everything from pets to jets, right? And so very aware, acutely aware, agree with you 100%, autonomous driving is only going to increase, right? Um, But in our industry, that's what we do. We sell legal contracts. So legal contracts will have to be designed for autonomous drivers, right? Now, um, there is definitely going to be a shift to uh, what we call embedded insurance. So insurance will just be embedded in the things that you buy. If you buy a drone, we'll probably have embedded insurance to cover you for liability, right? If you open up a laptop, you'll probably have uh, libel and slander coverage included in case you say something negative about someone. Uh, The same for cars. Uh, and many of them are toying with it anyway. Now, Tesla's thinking about coming sure. with their own and Lucid and some of the other uh, electric manufacturer vehicles are as well. Um, I think it's a more difficult play than they realize because the, the tough thing to manage in insurance is losses, right? And you can't, it's tough to mm-hmm. predict, right? If you have all the insurance off the coast of Florida, well, one storm and your insurance company could be you know, bankrupt, right? So you have to transfer that risk about. Um, it's definitely going to be a more embedded process, right? Um, but uh, the the need for insurance expands far beyond just automobiles, right? Yes, that is billions and billions. Um, but there's the home insurance, there's renters. And in one of my books I talk about, which is pretty revolutionary, I think the world will catch up as, uh, as I'm six feet under probably, but uh, really we call it a human policy, right? So what if what if we could design a legal contract, an insurance policy that covered humans? And so for whatever you do, Maxim, if you need health insurance, if you pass away, if you get sick, like right now, that's under health insurance, that's under life insurance. Uh, in your house, you might need home insurance. In your car, you need auto insurance. What if we had a human policy? That covered us for human-related events. I fly a drone. My human policy covers me. Right? It would be a substantial portion of your income because newsflash, if you totaled up all the money you spent on insurance anyway, you would be shocked, right? But if it's a human policy that covers you, right, with very few exclusions, it's pretty revolutionary. There's somebody tinkering somewhere in a basement <laughs> coming up with this. Um, but uh, I, I laid out the foundation for it a couple of years ago in multi-chapters. So I'm claiming credit when it comes I to see. fruition. Awesome. So 
in entrepreneurship and, and, and building a business, there's highs and lows and there's everything in between. Are there any specific stories that you have that uh, come to you? One, um, in the 90s, uh, I had sold uh, Western Pacific, which we talked about earlier, to a bank. Um, and I did not realize at the time, because I was enamored with the check that I was about to receive, quite frankly. Um, but within a week, uh, I was in a full-on uh, depression in a fetal position in my bed, could not get out, kept the room uh, lights off and the, the windows closed uh, in, in the room. And the kids kept asking, Mom, what's wrong with Dad? Uh, and quite frankly, I was depressed, right? You know, you know looking back, because... Everything I had done for close to a decade was built, and that was my entire identity. And it was a child, for lack of a better word. And so when I was removed from that day-to-day -day interaction, um, the, the money didn't fill that void, right? And it didn't replace that desire. Um, it, uh, it was very sad. And then another one in my darkest uh, time period in all of my um, – my wonderful insurance career is when I bought my firm, uh, bought all the shares from that uh, firm I was telling you about earlier. Um, there were some misunderstandings um, in, um, in, in the transaction, uh, whatever. Long story short, I was sued for $1 billion. That's oh, a B, $1 billion. Goodness. And I can just tell you this, that um, if you've ever or ever get sued for $1 billion, there is no sleep. Uh, there is no happiness. There is no uh, optimism, wow. right? And so I laid awake at night looking at the ceiling, wondering quite literally, am I going to keep a roof over my kids' heads? How am I going to feed my you know, family? I'm a provider. How do, I, uh, how do I not let my family down? And so it took um, two years to wind through that case. Um, and I started over at 42 years old. I mean, with nothing, wow. right? Uh, all I had was right sure. Uh, and the dream took to where we are now. And so it was a deep, dark place. Don't recommend that on anyone. Long story short, the suit got tossed out because they figured, well, we've taken all the money from him. He's at zero. Let's go. <laughs> right. But um, that was two years of hell, purgatory, whatever, however you want to, word you want to ascribe to it. And so uh, as optimistic and as fun loving as I am, uh, I can go to that dark place and know that I never want to be there again. But here's the beautiful part, right? Here's the silver lining. We're still here, right? She's here. We're stronger than ever, right? And so we bounce back. Um, so it feels wow. good. That's that's crazy. Last question I have for you, and it is um, in entrepreneurship, do you think it's more important to be courageous or intelligent? Well, I would say I are neither. Uh, but because if there's a stupid way to do it, uh, I've done it. And if there's a way to back down from something that I didn't have the fortitude for, I've done it. I would say courage uh, will... Uh, outwin over smarts. Um, a dogged determination will win in the end. My money would be on the person who doesn't quit, even if they're a moron. You're probably looking at one. This has been an episode of Seeking Startups. I'm your host, Maxim Davis, and thank you for listening to the whole show. Make sure to subscribe and like this episode. Before I let you go, if you're a founder who is interested in getting highlighted on the show, email me at maxim at seekingstartups.com. Once again, thank you. And until next time, keep investing in the future.